It's Tuesday, January 29th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The polar vortex is back, and it's going to hit the Midwest hard. It will bring the coldest weather in a generation, and in Chicago, no one under 25 will have ever experienced weather this cold. Andrew Friedman, extreme weather expert and science editor at Axios, joins us for a look at the freezing temps and how this all fits in with global warming. Next, we are still in a shutdown hangover, and we are starting to see some of the numbers. The Congressional Budget Office projected that the 35-day partial government shutdown resulted in losses of $11 billion, $3 billion of which can never be recovered. Caitlin Emma, budget and appropriations reporter for Politico, joins us for the cost of the shutdown. Finally, the content landscape is becoming saturated. Think of all the various amounts of news you read, Instagram pictures you like, and YouTube videos you watch. It's all considered content, and that's the problem. Everything is content and is causing a shift in how we consume it. Jacob Gallagher, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, joins us for a discussion on how traditional content like journalism and magazines are faltering, while brand content and content creators are thriving. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. A lobe of a piece of the polar vortex. True Arctic air, direct from the pole, is coming down over the Midwest. We're going to set records not just at the surface, but actually at about 5,000 feet up, which from a meteorological standpoint is particularly impressive. Joining us now is Andrew Friedman, our favorite extreme weather expert and science editor at Axios. So the polar vortex is back. It's going to hit the Midwest with the coldest weather in a generation. I think I saw it in your article. It said something like nobody under 25 that's living in Chicago right now will have ever experienced this type of cold weather before. So what do we know about the polar vortex and what should these people be expecting? We knew a couple of weeks ago that the polar vortex had been disrupted, which is a way of saying, you know, this big circulation in the upper atmosphere that always happens in the wintertime had wobbled and weakened and pieces of it had broken off. And when that happens, meteorologists become more alert, watching more closely for possible cold air outbreaks further south, so into Europe. Asia and the United States. That's basically what's what's taking place now is that a lobe of a piece of the polar vortex, true Arctic air, direct from the pole, is coming down over the Midwest. We're going to set records not just at the surface, but actually at about 5,000 feet up, which from a meteorological standpoint is particularly impressive. It's going to be probably around minus 42, 44 degrees Celsius at about 5,000 feet. That's an indication of how cold the surface temperatures may be. Getting more specific into like what people will feel on the ground. You know, people in Chicago, people in Minneapolis, I lived in Chicago, people there pride themselves on getting through cold weather. (laughs) They know how to deal with this. Everybody suffers together. You joke about like your frozen eyelids and like you have your layers. People in Chicago wear long underwear to work sometimes in the wintertime. It's just a thing you do. This, however, is really downright dangerous cold. We're going to have wind chills even into Chicago around negative 40 Fahrenheit, wow. probably on Wednesday morning and maybe on Thursday morning. They're already throwing the the warnings out there saying, be careful for frostbite. Things can start setting in as quickly as 5 to 15 minutes outside if you have any skin. That is exp- but I did want to get back a little bit to this polar vortex and how it splintered off because... From my understanding, it was warm air that's kind of split the vortex, and then that 
that's what happened. And I love the way you put it in your article. It says, if Mother Nature left the freezer door open and all that cold air is coming straight towards us. What happened back at the beginning of January was known as a sudden stratospheric warming event. If you think about 100,000 feet up in the atmosphere, some waves of energy from the lower atmosphere kind of cruised up there. And they had a very sudden spike in uh, temperatures at that level. And what that does is it kind of radiates energy back up and back down. And over time, it can, through just the way fluid dynamics works, kind of like colliding waves in a swimming pool or in the ocean, it can do weird things in terms of disrupting what was this nice, beautiful, perfectly round polar vortex and cause it to split off and meander drunkenly sort of about the northern hemisphere. It's going to last pretty much uh, in the same area all week and then shift to the east and moderate. But cities like D.C., New York, Boston will also see uh, low temperatures later in the week in the single digits below zero in the, in the suburbs. Talk to us about the polar vortex and what we're going to be experiencing this week in uh, broader terms with regards to global warming and climate change as a whole, because I know a lot of people say, how is it so cold if we're supposed to be having global warming? I know the science (laughs) suggests that the earth is warming and everything, but meld these two together for us. From one perspective, I'm looking at this cold and I'm thinking, wow, this is is quite impressive. It's really impressive. It's hard to do statistically now. In the climate we have now, having warmed as much as we have over the past century or more, it's hard to pull off extreme cold like this. The science shows that extreme cold like this is going to be less frequent as time goes on. Now, there is science showing that as you warm the planet and you melt more Arctic sea ice and that creates more open ocean continuing into the fall, you may be priming things for polar vortex events to happen more frequently in the U.S. and Europe in the following winter. There are a number of studies that have been published on this. This doesn't mean that this cold is due to global warming. This more means that weather patterns like this may happen more frequently, extremes of both polar vortex variety and of the heat wave variety. And what I point people to is the fact that, you know, the Midwest, and the Ohio Valley are going to be frozen this week. But the United States as a whole is going to be warmer than average. The world as a whole is going to be considerably warmer than average. We're about to hear from NASA and NOAA now that they're back to work that 2018 was most likely the fourth warmest year on record and the past five years were the five warmest years off the planet has seen. And if you want to think about the extremes going on right now on the planet, you can think of the Midwest with the extreme cold, and it's going to be painful, and people are going to really have a hard time with this. Our infrastructure is going to have a hard time with this. And then you have what's going on in Australia, where the entire country has been blazingly hot since November, hotter than that country is accustomed to, most likely going to be their hottest summer on record. January will be their hottest month on record, and they're seeing temperatures above 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, I point to that extreme because that's the type of thing that we're seeing more of and in more in greater intensity. One could argue, and there may be studies published on this, that this cold event would actually have been colder had this occurred 20 years ago and will, you know, come less frequently as time goes on. But that's really of no consolation 
to the millions of people who are going right. to be painfully waiting for the bus or commuting if those schools are still open. I do expect closures for a couple days. Andrew Friedman, extreme weather expert and science editor for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We had 12 departments and agencies affected by the shutdown. 800,000 employees were not paid over that time period out of 2.1 million employees. So that's about 40%. But we do think that once the government's back in place, federal workers begin to work again. We think there'll be a fairly quick recovery from that. There is a permanent loss, however, right? You lose the government output for five weeks. That's never made up. Uh, So we think on net, we're still going to be about $3 billion short. Joining us now is Caitlin Emma, budget and appropriations reporter for Politico. It lasted five weeks. The partial government shutdown cost the U.S. economy about $11 billion, according to the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office. $3 billion of that is money that we're never going to be able to get back. The economy will recover that $3 billion we might not get back. What do we know about these numbers and how the CBO made this determination? So the CBO, like you said, projected an overall loss of $11 billion due to the shutdown, which was the longest government shutdown in history. But CBO projected that that will be offset by a projected $8 billion boost over the course of the year. But when we're looking at the numbers, one particular thing that stuck out to me was when it comes to the IRS, which was one of the agencies that wasn't funded during the shutdown, the Congressional Budget Office estimated that tax revenue is going to be about $2 billion lower in fiscal 2019 because of a slowdown in compliance work that happened to the shutdown. That's a huge loss. And CBO basically said a lot of that is never going to be recouped. And then there are also some things that CBO you know, said to think about, but didn't take into account when it was coming up with this report. For example, the director of the Congressional Budget Office said federal workers' morale is something to think about moving forward, whether or not that will be a blow to agencies when it comes to hiring or the federal government hiring new employees, the blow to businesses that couldn't get federal permits or government-backed loans. These are things to think about, sort of the macroeconomic perspective, but things that CBO did not take into account when putting this report together. And on that front, I mean, if you're somebody who's looking for a job in the government and then you are going to be worried about something like this happening again, yeah, that could deter you from wanting a job. I mean, we're kind of in the situation now. The government is reopened for three weeks for negotiations to go on, but it could go happen again if the president doesn't get his way. If Democrats don't want to cut a deal, they could shut it down again or the president could declare a national emergency. Now, we know that the most significant effects are on the federal workers and the contractors that weren't getting paid during this time. But a lot of it is also lost business that these workers themselves didn't produce. You know, they weren't going to restaurants and they weren't shopping and because they were maybe saving or holding back. So that's all stuff that is lost that we're not going to be able to get back. And and then one of the other ones, uh, you were mentioning the IRS and uh, there's some really important tax stuff. You know, these workers that are going to get their money, they're getting it all in kind of a lump sum. So they're going to have more money withheld when they get that money back. So how does that even square away? That is one of the things that CBO said to take into account is the fact that federal workers over the course of five weeks missed about two paychecks, the second paycheck going out on Friday, which is when the government shutdown ended. So that actually, because those workers weren't paid during the shutdown, the lapse is going to complicate tax withholding for the next few months. And it's going to result in like a temporary revenue boost for the IRS in short term 
losses for federal workers who are going to receive all of that money in one lump sum with more of it withheld in taxes. And I think the back pay is supposed to go through by the end of this week. The report was released with the annual report detailing the economic outlook for the next decade. There was a little bit of good news in that, saying that the budget deficit will hit about $900 billion this year and start exceeding $1 trillion beginning in 2022, which was two years later than the CBO had previously estimated. If you want to call that a bright spot. I mean, <laughs> a two-year delay. Yeah. <laughs> in that, um, it's a little less worse than you know previously predicted. Still, the director of the Congressional Budget Office cautions that it's unusual for the country to be running such high deficits when the economy is relatively strong and unemployment numbers are relatively low. So it could be a sign of severe disparity to come. Director Keith Hall told reporters that, you know, that is something that we need to think about. And if there's some kind of economic downturn, and inevitably there probably will be, economies go through cycles, and the federal deficit could take a major hit if there is some sort of kind of dip in the economy and in, in the well-being of the economy. But for now, the federal deficit is expected to exceed $1, exceed $1 trillion beginning in 2022. And the Congressional Budget Office had originally estimated that that would happen in, in 2020. Did they mention anything about trade, considering the ongoing trade war with China, things like that? Was any of that mentioned in that report? Yeah, so there is an interesting section in the report on import tariffs imposed by the Trump administration. Basically, CBO estimate, and it's in the subsequent effect on, on trading partners internationally, and CBO estimated that those change in trade administration in trade policy will reduce real GDP by about 0.1% by 2022. That may not sound like a lot, but in the report sort of cautions that these kinds of changes in trade policy increase uncertainty among investors. And if, you know, there's a quote in there that essentially says if investors lose confidence in stable international trade and economic relationships, then that just compounds the uncertainty and may delay investments or discourage them entirely. And that could mean bad things for economic activity in the United States and abroad. So the report sort of issues just a general warning on some of um, these trade policy changes put forth by the Trump administration. Caitlin Emma, budget and appropriations reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Effectively, content becomes a way for brands to advertise at you. They're formulating tweets and they're crafting Instagram posts and they're, as you mentioned, forming entire website blogs or entire editorial platforms, as a lot of these brands call them today, to generate content to kind of entice an audience and bring them into the fold. It's not a novel way of advertising per se that you're buying into the brand as opposed to buying into the product, but it certainly is quite pervasive and and seemingly quite effective in this day and age. Joining us now is Jacob Gallagher, reporter for the Wall Street Journal. We're going to be talking about content and think about all the apps on your phone, things that you have, maybe some news apps, you have your Instagram, your Twitter, your Facebook. Every day we're being bombarded by content. It seems like everything really is considered content from news stories to just pictures to your favorite brands and food companies sending you stuff. Everything is content. And right now we're going through this moment where a lot of traditional journalism and media companies are starting to lay off a lot of workers, but brands on the other hand are ramping up their editorial stuff. They're making their content creating machines right now. So Jacob, tell us a little bit about this. What is content and what's going on with it right now? 
I'd come to realize that everything I consumed on a daily basis, be it when I open my phone, I look at Twitter, when I look at Instagram and take a scroll through there, when I'm simply opening up my email often, what's being thrown at me is content. And though all those things exist on different platforms, be it social media or more traditional internet media like a blog or a website, they all kind of feel the same on this digital landscape and they do come to be known as content. And when you speak to people even on traditional media, you know, if you go journalism side of things, we will often say things like, oh, you know, this is content in relation to an article or something like that. So it's just kind of become this shorthand. That to me represented some kind of a paradigm shift, which is what I was looking at within this story of kind of how we arrived at this point where content has seemingly taken over the world. Specifically with brands right now, it's really another form of advertising, whether it be slick video that they produce to promote their newest shoe or something, or whether they're writing articles saying, hey, these are the best shoes for you know running or whatnot. It's really right. just another form of advertising for them. That's absolutely right. And one thing that I was considering was basically just when you really take a look at it, this is where brands are meeting people where they live, if you will, where they're spending all of their time. So social media comes about, people join social media. You know, Facebook is, is kind of always the one that's looked at and talked about in these terms where Facebook starts to design for you and your mother and your best friend and a couple of friends from, that you knew from high school and what have you. And then suddenly M&M is on there and Lowe's Hardware is on there and Nike's on there and they're just coming to where people exist. So effectively, content becomes a way for brands to advertise at you. And as opposed to being a television advertisement, you know, they're formulating tweets and they're crafting Instagram posts. And they're, as you mentioned, forming entire website blogs or entire editorial platforms, as a lot of these brands call them today, to generate content to kind of entice readers, entice an audience and bring them into the fold. It's not a novel way of advertising per se that you're buying into the brand as opposed to buying into the product, but it certainly is quite pervasive and, and seemingly quite effective in this day and age. A lot of these companies are letting go of a lot of people. There was a BuzzFeed that laid off a bunch of people. Huffington Post laid off a bunch of people. Even Gannett, who has a huge network of local newspapers, mm -hmm. laid off a bunch of people. What's driving their downsizing? There's a multitude of reasons why that's happening. As I mentioned in the piece, with an organization like Gannett, people discuss the fact that consolidation of local media into national organizations and national corporations, it becomes difficult to kind of meet those profit margins and those revenue expectations. And then looking at BuzzFeed and HuffPo, there facing the issue where, where Facebook has really been quite effective at, at eating up all of the ad revenue that exists online these days. You know, they're really good at targeted advertising. And so they're taking a big chunk of that pie that people are spending into their digital advertising allocation of brands, that is. Yeah, they capture your eyes and your attention. And hey, while you're here, buy it with us. And it pays off. So, I mean, it's just increasing so much. That's why I like your articles, because everything is content. I mean, people yeah. are their own brands now, and they're making content. That's why you have our yeah. social media influencers and our YouTube content creators. Everything is a brand. Everything has its own content. And you really just got to expect to see so much more. And then it's you on the consumer to really discern which one is branded content, things like that, or 
if we're still speaking about journalism and news items, you know, which is which, and, you know, it's on you to have to really figure it out. Because it does come down to what they're saying of what, what, what's happening is basically we're getting to the point that everyone has gotten so good at it and everyone's just eating up your attention. We're facing a point where there's only so many hours in a day. There's only so much time right. you can allocate to this stuff. So it does become more and more difficult within that landscape. You know, these brands are really competing against each other now. One guy I spoke with was, was kind of mentioned the fact that, you know, Nike just keeps building up their content and building up more content. And I said, well, why do you think that is? He effectively said, well, because if they don't do it, Adidas will. And it, it kind of is that simple. Jacob Gallagher, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.